Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity back here with you. What an exciting episode we have today. Now, look, you know how I've been interviewing people, particularly Professor Simon Michaud. If you haven't seen that, take a look. But he says, look, to get to this uh, green energy nirvana that everybody wants to get to, we have some issues, particularly how fast we can mine resources. And it looks fairly daunting. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that solutions do exist. They're not being pursued. There's a subtext to that. What does that mean? Why not? But small nuclear reactors are the way to go. And we could be doing this. Other countries are doing this. The United States, Europe generally are not. We have to talk about why that is. But first, we're going to get into technology with a good friend of mine, Eric Townsend of Macro Voices and uh, Energy. What's that, that on your shirt? I can almost Energy read it, Eric. EnergyTransitionCrisis.org is the new Ener website for my docu-series. Fantastic. Really looking forward to that um, coming out. And uh, uh, for full disclosure, Eric was one of the very first people to notice the crash course as I was putting it out in serial form in the spring and summer of 2008. Got on a plane, flew in, and helped me get that series up and out. So, Eric, uh, early to the game. I think you're early to this game, too. Uh, you're an angel investor who sees things early. And I just I'm fascinated to find out what your thinking is in, in this regard here today. Well, I hope you won't be offended by my energy transition crisis docuseries because half of it was unabashedly ripped off from the crash course, starting with <laughs> fantastic uh, <laughs> with, with the, the law of abundant energy. So uh, a lot of the best messages came there. And that was really where my journey with uh, getting over being energy blind came from. Like most people, I used to think of energy as just guys named Bubba in Texas driving pickup trucks doing whatever they have to do to you know drill the next oil well. I never thought about it. And I never understood that we've literally had our prosperity stolen from us by government malfeasance around energy policy. I had no idea that energy policy was mm -hmm. so important until I learned it from the crash course. So thank you for that lesson. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm, it's the greatest thing to to get an idea out and have other people run with it and do things with it you never thought of. So so that that's just uh, music to my ears. However, it it's we're getting late in the game because that was 2008, right? And we found that there were solutions even back 2009, 2010. And I thought, Eric, because I'm a quick learner, eventually, it took me forever to figure out that even though you have a better mousetrap, a really solid idea, even though you've got a really good idea, that would help lives, save lives, improve prosperity. There are people who are going to fight that. And I think that's why we're in the situation we're in right now. But today, before we go there and opine about what that is and why, I want to talk about what these solutions might be. I know nuclear has had a, um, in fact, this would be me 20 years ago. If you said nuclear, I probably would have winced a little because I've been fed a load of uh, marketing and propaganda that basically said, oh, nuclear is this dangerous thing. And if Three Mile Island happens, everybody dies, you know, but then you look at the data and you ask the question, how many people have died from nuclear over the years? And it's practically nobody, um, even after Fukushima, right? Worst nuclear disaster of our lifetimes. I think it it, it trumps uh, Chernobyl. So with all of that, nuclear had a bad rep. Now I'm thinking very differently about it. And I can't wait to hear what you've got here. Uh, quick summary. Is it possible? for us to replace the energy we get from fossil fuels with nuclear power? Oh, absolutely, it's possible. Right now, governments are standing in the way of this in the West. And what's happening in real time right now is China is doing everything that we should be doing. 
They've already built a molten salt reactor based on the research that our tax dollars, our parents' tax dollars paid for at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory way back in the 1960s. That program, going back to what you said about the safety concerns, that program at Oak Ridge was commissioned in 1960 because they figured out that meltdowns and core depressurizations and hydrogen explosions, like the ones that blew the roofs off the reactor building in Fukushima, were a big problem. They solved all of those problems with a new reactor design that gets rid of water as the coolant, uses molten salt instead. There, there's no hydrogen explosions. There's no pressurization. It's just a better way. What's the reaction of the Nixon administration? Oh, they've solved all the safety problems? Shut the program down immediately and destroy all of the research documents immediately. And in my Energy Transition Crisis docuseries, I actually play a leaked phone call between President Nixon and Congressman Craig Hosmer, where they're plotting to shut down the research that's not in their own home state of California. And they, they, they actually ordered the destruction of all of the research documents. The researchers, the research scientists couldn't bear to destroy the best research in the history of nuclear energy. So they hid it in the basement of a children's museum in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, near the laboratory. And it sat for 40 years and it was almost forgotten. It was discovered by this former NASA engineer, Kirk Sorensen, who I think you've interviewed uh, on this program. Mm -hmm. And Kirk found this stuff and said, oh my God, he was researching how to build a, or how to power a colony on the moon. And he said, oh my gosh, you know, we should be using this not on the moon, but on earth. And he left NASA and he said, I, I got to commercialize this. I so he got all of that research. He published it on the internet because Kirk is a super guy. He didn't want to try to keep it for himself. He wanted to allow others to commercialize it too. Well, what's happened is no institutional investor in their right mind will invest in Kirk's company or in Copenhagen Atomics, which I know uh, one of your guests recently visited. Uh, I saw that on, on Twitter recently, uh, or in any of these other molten salt reactor companies. Why not? Because they know that the regulators, the Western regulators, are not going to approve anything new unless there's a top-down directive. We would need the president of the United States to issue an executive order saying the Nuclear Regulatory Commission should not be run by the current guy who's running it, who has a, a master's degree from Yale Divinity School. So if we want to pray for a green future, that's the guy to, to go yeah. to. Um, <laughs> if, if you want to actually approve new technologies and adopt the technologies that make nuclear safer and get rid of the risk of meltdowns and hydrogen explosions and all the rest, they're not doing any of that. Investors know that Western bureaucrats are not doing any of that, and they won't invest in it for that reason. China has taken the research that Kirk posted on the internet back in 2011. They have already built their molten salt reactor. They've announced molten salt uh, small modular reactor powered container ships that they're going to build. And they've built these other really fancy uh, gas-cooled reactors, which are super high temperature. The importance of high temperature is not only can you make electricity from it, but you can also very efficiently make hydrogen from it. And once you've got hydrogen, there's a number of different liquid fuels that you could make. In theory, it's pretty expensive, but you can power airplanes with it. You can power ships at sea. There's all kinds of things that you can do when you have a much higher temperature reactor. China's actually building all of these advanced nuclear technologies. Almost nothing is happening 
in the West. All of the pet, all of the SMR companies that are doing molten salt and thorium and all the really exciting technologies are the pet projects of billionaires who don't need institutional capital in order to fund what they're doing. So Bill Gates and TerraPower in, uh, in the West Coast of the US is one of those startups that's doing some exciting things. Copenhagen Atomics is a company that I've invested in as an angel investor. I know one of your guests was just there because I saw the, the pictures on Twitter with my, my friends at Copenhagen Atomics. They're one of the most exciting companies in this space. But most institutional money doesn't want to touch it because they know that Western regulators are standing in the way of progress. And that's the problem we have to solve is the government is standing in the way of, of progress and preventing energy transition when they should be enabling it. Now, the, the same government, um, it, it reminds me a little bit of the CDC or the FDA vis-a-vis -vis COVID, right? So so we have the Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, as a subset of the Department of Energy going, no, you can't have these small modular reactors and, and you can't have cheap, reliable, abundant energy. But we are very interested in passing rules that say out of the same DOE that, you know, and with the EPA in, in tow, you, you can't use natural gas anymore. You're going to have to electrify everything. We're going to actually have state legislatures start to mandate and outlaw internal combustion engines without any supply chain saying, here's how we're going to build the, the, the necessary vehicle fleet to get there. But even beyond that, how are we going to power that vehicle fleet? Eric, it looks like we're just failing basic math, like basic common sense, basic math. If you say we want to get rid of ICE engines and we're going to replace it with electric vehicles, you can calculate how many billions of miles of charging you need equivalent. You can calculate if you have that in the system. And if you don't, you have to tell me where it's going to come from. They don't take those steps. You have any understanding of why this is? Is this just the divinity no. school writ large uh, in too many positions? I think that it's authoritarianism and uh, there's an elite class that wants for some reason to attack things rather than build good. You know, they don't want to work on building solutions. They want to attack what they see as their enemies. And I think the reason is in this fourth turning environment that we're in is people mm. respond to feeling like somebody is out getting the bad guys. Let's 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 punish oil and gas. Well, wait a minute. Why would you if you stop and step back and look at this problem of energy transition, why would it ever make sense to punish anyone or try to get rid of anything? What we need is clean energy. What we should focus on is building clean energy. Oil and gas will go away all by themselves as soon as there are viable replacements that actually work. To try to say, we're going to pass legislation to outlaw coal-burning power plants. We're going to outlaw the sale of vehicles with internal combustion engines. If you upgraded the electric grid to the point where you could charge all of the EVs and you built the EVs, and if we actually had the mining capacity for, to get the copper and the battery metals, which we don't have in order to build those electric vehicles, then the demand for oil would collapse all by itself. Why is that not happening? Because we don't have the capacity to build those electric vehicles. The electric vehicles are still super expensive. Why are they so expensive? Because the materials needed to build them are so expensive. So we're focusing on the wrong thing. We shouldn't be trying to identify villains and then go attack in ways which take energy and therefore standard of living away from human beings. What we should do is be creating solutions and say, we've got a better way. We've got clean energy over here that doesn't pollute the environment. Use that instead. 
we don't focus on that. We focus on punishing supposed bad guys that are not really bad guys. Well, what's fascinating, and then we'll get to, I know you've got some slides to help make the case, because I want people to understand this, that that there are solutions out there. Now, to the extent people, regulators, whomever is busy blocking those solutions, every day they do that, every week that passes just makes it harder to get to where we need to get to for, for uh, reasons related to resources, energy, available energy, all that. But um, before we go there, I, I'm a simple guy, Eric. I, 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 when I don't really understand something and I don't want to spend the 800 hours to understand it, you know, I read the headlines. Headlines are wind cheaper than coal. Wind cheaper than coal, et cetera. Right? So if this was true, then I would not read the corresponding headlines, which are offshore wind company goes bankrupt. Uh, wind turbines wear out too fast. You know, I'm just, I read the market results. I'm not like if this was true, that this was cheaper than fossil fuels, you wouldn't need subsidies. You wouldn't need market. These companies would be minting money hand over fist, but they're not. So it tells me the story is broken without having to dive real deep and, and get into all the minutiae around that. But something is very wrong with our story. If we don't make this energy transition to get to the to the name of your website, what happens? Oh, the thing that I think people are missing in this whole story is it's all about prosperity. It's about standard of living. People are mostly focused on climate change. And look, I, I'm not you know, arguing against the climate change cause. I certainly care about the environment. Uh, ever since I watched the crash course, I've been worried about energy, uh, environment. Uh, what are the three E's again? I've forgotten. Ener energy, economy. environment, and, and economy, yeah. right. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I care, but what's more important is that we have the standard of living that's been stolen from us ever since the mid-1970s. In the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. we were on a continuous trend of increasing per capita energy consumption. That flattened out and then started going negative around 1974. I've got a chart I'll show you in just a minute that depicts that. What that means for anybody who's watched the crash course, they already know. As soon as your per capita energy consumption is going down, your standard of living is going down. For our entire lifetimes, Chris, standard of living has been going down, only slightly, but down. For our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, it was consistently going up from the end of World War II up until 1974. And we need to get back on that. So the key, obviously, is you've got to make energy as cheap as it was in the 1960s. And even after adjusting for inflation, you know, energy costs more than twice what it did when you and I were kids. 1972, gasoline was 30 cents a gallon. Adjusted for inflation, that's $2 a gallon in today's prices. But remember, a lot of that inflation was caused by the increasing energy prices. So you wouldn't have had the inflation and you wouldn't have had the inflation in the price of everything else. And you would have had a better standard of living if we had kept on the abundant energy world we had before that. And we've lost it and we need to get it back. We've had the technology staring us in the face. And literally what happened, if you look at Oliver Stone's uh, documentary, documentary film, Nuclear Now, he goes into all kinds of detail about how the Nixon administration knew that they could solve the whole energy crisis with nuclear energy. 
And when the guys at Oak Ridge figured out how to solve all the safety problems that the anti-nuclear lobby was most concerned about, they immediately ordered the shutdown of the project and the destruction of all of the research documents. They wanted to make sure that nuclear got killed and was never economic in order to protect the money interests of the oil and gas industry. And what I think a lot of young people are unfortunately falling for is Although there is truth to the climate change arguments, I do care about the planet. I, I do want to see us decarbonize our atmosphere. That's all good. But all of this wind and solar obsession has as much to do with the money interests that are benefiting from the subsidies that have been provided to those industries and the kickbacks that are involved to the politicians. That's what it's mostly about. And we, could, we definitely need to uh, phase out as much of fossil fuels as we need to, or as we can, in order to decarbonize the atmosphere. But the technology to do that's been staring us in the face since the early 1970s. And we didn't do it on purpose because the government wanted to keep energy scarce to protect the money interests of the oil and gas industry. That's the kind of corruption and malfeasance that we need to recognize for what it is, call it out. And it's easy to solve this problem. We know what the technology is, there's never been a better time than the present to do it, but we're not following the right technologies. We're not following the science. We've got politicians rather than scientists and engineers deciding which energy sources we ought to be using. And I think they're deciding it based on the deals that they've made and the subsidies and kickbacks that are involved. You know, I'm a, I'm a business guy. You're a business guy. Um, the way I lead my organization with my team is is with strategy. You have to know where you're going and how you're going to get there. You always do. I mean, that's just everything because resources are always limited. So where, where are you going to put your energy? All right. I read China's um, multi-year energy plan recently, and it's a five-point plan and put together by, you know, real energy people. And it made sense. Every word in that, I was like, yep, 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 yep. So so they get it, right? Um so I, I think what we have to, one of the things I'd like to communicate to people here today is that in the West, so I'm principally talking, well, it's the five eyes, right? You got US, Europe, which includes the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Like we've got to get our stuff together here. We've got to get reason and rationality back in there. And no, we don't need more community organizers, um, divinity students, and former lawyers uh, in charge of these things. We got to get some hard-nosed engineers in there right away. And we got to start talking about this stuff because just the money that just this past week probably got wasted in Ukraine, that alone would fund what we're talking about to get get these uh, ideas out of prototype or into a deeper prototype stage so we could go further. It It's doable. So let's turn to your presentation now, Eric, because I, I just want to show people what we're talking about. Uh, pictures are worth a thousand words sometimes. So let's go through as much as this as makes sense. But what are these units we're talking about? What is a what is a liquid salt? reactor and what's a small nuclear reactor look like well first of all i just want i'm going to go fairly quickly through this this will be a teaser for a video i've got coming out probably about a week after this airs we're shooting for christmas to uh, mm -hmm. to get a new video called nuclear smrs versus renewables that'll be available at energytransitioncrisis.org it's completely free and uh, look there for more detail than we'll have time to go into today but i'm going to give Great. you the teaser for it now so let's start with what we've already spent on renewable energy in the last two decades alone is $4.6 trillion. Well, what was the goal? The goal was to break our addiction to fossil fuels. 
So what has our progress been? How much have we reduced the demand for fossil fuels as a result of that $4.6 trillion investment? The answer is exactly zero. (laughs) Haven't done anything. Highest demand ever this year for all all three categories. And and it will be even higher in 2023. What I'm going to show you, uh, or at least give you the teaser for, is how we could spend about the same amount of money, $4.6 trillion, to create enough nuclear energy electric generation capacity worldwide to re- to completely replace all of the energy we get from fossil fuels today. We, we, we still need fossil fuels to make plastics and so forth, but to get all of the energy we need to electrify the economy mm-hmm. and, and just make a better world, I'll show you how we can do that. But what I really want to start with is this chart. This comes courtesy of my friend Mike Green over at Simplify Asset Management. This is per capita energy consumption in the United States. From uh, basically the end of World War II, that is the black line shows, we were on this consistent uptrend in standard of living, and that's really proxy measured by per capita energy consumption. The trend broke around 1974. And ever since then, we've had a we're kind of flatlined for a while, but then around 2000, it started going into a state of continuous decline. And the reason is energy is getting more scarce as fossil fuels become more and more expensive thanks to peak cheap oil. And we need to get back on this black line. That's really what I focus on. So I believe in climate change, but I'm more focused on how do we get back to the black line, the the trend of ever increasing standard of living and human prosperity. What are the ways that you might do that? Wind and solar is all of the politicians' favorite, uh, you know, chosen chosen child it just isn't scalable and you know we've spent 4.6 trillion dollars so far and we haven't reduced uh, fossil fuel demand by one single barrel of oil after 25 Mm -hmm. years even if and it's intermittent which really makes it unsuitable for baseload energy uh, delivery if you use batteries with it which is what a lot of people are advocating now you're stealing battery metals that we need to build the electric vehicles. We're not going to be able to mine Mm -hmm. enough battery metals to make the electric vehicles as it is. So we can't afford to use them to to provide battery backup for wind and solar. Hydropower is a fantastic green energy source. We've basically built all the hydropower that we can. It's dependent on geology. You've got to have uh, an elevated lake or, or river or something that you can put a dam in front of in order to make a hydroelectric plant. Every place that's conducive to that in the world where there's people that would benefit from it, we've already done it. Deep geothermal, where you drill a well very deep into the earth's crust, go through like 400 degrees Celsius granite and pump water through it, comes back you know, uh, boiling supercritical steam that you can run a turbine with. Great idea, but it's just not economic. If we could have some kind of breakthrough in drilling technology, maybe deep geothermal will be a big player someday. But as it stands today, the technology is just not ready for prime time. Nuclear, Except, you has know, been ready- um, like, like Iceland and maybe, maybe a couple spots, but not not yeah. globally. Yeah. In volcano country, it works. There's another yeah. one called OTEC, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, which works in Hawaii and almost no place else. If you have <laughs> a populated <laughs> island and it's only a couple of miles offshore to get to where it's like, you know, 3,000 meters deep, then mm-hmm. you can you can do this ocean thermal stuff. You can do geothermal in Iceland, Indonesia, and a couple of other places where there's super hot rock very close to the surface. 
nuclear yeah. works uh, conventional nuclear works most places but you need an adjacent river or ocean to provide the cooling water for conventional nuclear molten mm -hmm. salt cooled uh, reactors which were invented in the 1960s in oak ridge tennessee don't need that you can build them in the middle of the desert and china has just done that they built a molten salt reactor in the middle of the gobi desert just to prove that specific point got a couple of slides here about just because I know it's a peak prosperity audience that understands EROEI and energy density and so forth. The, you know, the, the various fuel sources that we have, by far, nuclear is the best. And nuclear is the source of all energy. As you know, almost any form of energy on Earth derives from the uneven heating of the Earth by the sun. So the solar energy works from direct solar radiation. Wind energy works by the sun heating the earth unevenly between uh, on land and on, on water. That disparity of temperatures causes the wind to blow. That's what makes the turbines spin. Uh, the way that, that oil works is you had sunshine energy that was feeding plants millions of years ago that all got decomposed down into the earth's crust and we can now pump it out as oil. It all comes from the sun. Where does the sunlight come from in the sun? Nuclear. That's what's happening in the, the core of the sun is a nuclear fusion chain reaction. So it's the best energy source that there is. The problem is that conventional nuclear costs too much and takes too long. It takes at least seven years and more likely 10 years and a couple of bankruptcies if you're doing it in the United States hmm. to build yeah. a conventional nuclear power plant. That was true in the 1970s when most of our nuclear plants were built. It's still true today. The Vodal power plant that's being built now or just being completed in Georgia literally bankrupt Westinghouse in 2018 because of cost and schedule overruns. Westinghouse is the biggest manufacturer of nuclear reactors, conventional nuclear reactors. The electricity that you get, because these things are so expensive to build, is at least 100 bucks a megawatt hour and probably 150 in terms of levelized cost of energy. It's very expensive electricity. Coal and gas cost half as much. So how are you going to talk the world into spending twice as much on energy from nuclear if you can keep polluting the environment with coal and gas for a few more years until we run out of that coal and gas? And it costs half as much. It costs less than half as much to build the plant. Those are the numbers at the bottom. And the cost of energy fully loaded is about half as much as nuclear. I contend that using small modular reactors, we can get the levelized cost of energy down to 20 bucks a milliwatt hour, cheaper than wind and solar, cheaper than coal and gas, cheaper than anything. And furthermore, we can build those power plants, not in seven to 10 years, but in seven to 10 months. And we can do that for a cost of construction, which is lower than any other kind of power plant. Well, that's a, a pretty, uh, pr pretty insane claim to make. It takes about 40, 45 minutes in this video that I've got coming out to fully explain how I propose to do that. But let me just give you the teaser. The essence of this, almost everybody is missing the point. And I'm when I say almost everybody, everybody including a lot of the entrepreneurs that are proposing designs for small modular reactors, I think are missing where the biggest opportunity is. For mm -hmm. energy transition, we need gigawatt power plants, not megawatt power plants. So this idea of community reactors, we're going to have a little five megawatt reactor that's going to power a small community. Well, first of all, the, the regulators won't approve that. If they would, they would want to have armed guards there, which run the cost up. There's lots of reasons that that's just not economic. 
People think SMRs, small modular reactors, are just for small applications, and they're missing the story. This is a slide from, uh, this picture is, is courtesy of Copenhagen Atomics, a company that I've invested in, and I know um, your recent guest just made a, a visit there. Their idea is make nuclear reactors in modular building blocks, like Lego blocks, where each nuclear reactor fits in a shipping container-sized module. So you can ship it anywhere on Earth using the existing container ship-based shipping infrastructure. So you, you send it anywhere on earth on a, on a container ship, and then a truck takes it to the nuclear plant. Zooming out of this, you see this is being loaded into a nuclear plant. Zooming out from that picture, the way you build a gigawatt power plant, which is what we need for energy transition, is you just gang together 25 of these reactor modules. Mm. And this building doesn't have to be built to nuclear construction standards. And when I first heard that, when I saw the Copenhagen pitch, I didn't understand the significance of it. A hmm. huge, huge amount of the cost of electricity from nuclear today comes from the need to have a decommissioning fund. The regulations require that when the nuclear power plant is first commissioned, they have to put money aside to tear it down someday. And it has to. the idea is to make sure that you can't possibly have a, a bankrupt utility just abandon a nuclear plant. There's got to be money set aside to eventually tear that plant down and decommission it. All of the nuclear concrete that was absorbing radiation for decades is treated as nuclear waste, which means demolishing that building and disposing of the rubble when, when you take down a nuclear plant is incredibly, incredibly expensive. And you pay that cost upfront for the electricity that you get from the nuclear plant. So if you can build a nuclear plant this is just a building that's made out of, you know, basic building materials. It's not nuclear concrete. It's not nuclear anything. All of the nuclear reactor is contained inside of these shipping modules. You can see they get stored in the back of the, uh, the building here after they're de decommissioned. They get stored for a cool down period and sent back to the factory where they were manufactured to be recycled. So then the rest of the building is not a nuclear building. It doesn't fall under nuclear construction rules. You don't have to have a decommissioning fund for it and so forth. If hmm. you can build these nuclear reactor modules on a factory, in a factory on an assembly line so that there's a ready supply of them, then all it takes to build a gigawatt power plant is just to have a container ship deliver 25 of these reactor modules. They show up on trucks like you see at the gate here. You load them into these, uh, these tubes are just containers in order to protect if there was never an accident or something to make sure that all of the, uh, the nuclear radiation gets contained into something that can easily be disposed of and taken away on a container ship just as easily as the reactors came in. The rest of the building doesn't even have to be built to nuclear standards. You can build this building maybe in a few years if you were using conventional construction. But I don't think we want to use conventional construction. First of all, why is, is that building even possible? Because we're going to build the reactors on assembly lines. And I say, if we're doing this at scale, we can do it in fully robotic assembly line, fully robotic assembly and test lines where the robots do the assembly and really, really high quality, uh, quality control and, and testing to make sure that we have absolute top safety standards. It'll be the safest thing ever built. But still, okay, 
Uh, I'm going to skip over some of these slides that are explained in the video because they'll take too long. This is just talking about some of the features of advanced nuclear reactors as opposed to old school nuclear reactors and why they're better. One of the problems, though, is even if and, and I think I can get the cost of building a nuclear power plant, which is about seven to twelve thousand dollars per kilowatt. I think I could get that number down to two hundred and fifty dollars per kilowatt to build the reactor modules if we're building them on a in in high volume on a fully robotic assembly line. But the problem is if you use it with a steam turbine, which is the way most nuclear plants or all nuclear plants work today, just this steam turbine, the yellow thing you see in the picture, costs a billion and a half dollars. It's an incredibly Ooh. expensive machine that has to be custom assembled on site. So wherever you are in the world, Siemens has to send a team of engineers out the parts are bigger than what can fit on a truck. And so it's really hard to transport the parts. They have to put it together on site. It's big and expensive and hard to do. Well, there's a brand new technology called supercritical carbon dioxide turbines. And don't worry, the carbon dioxide is circulating in a closed loop. So there's no carbon emissions. There's no greenhouse gas emissions. It's totally green. It's a replacement for steam turbines that's one-tenth of the size and weight. This tiny little turbine that you see these two guys standing with, that's a 10 megawatt turbine. So uh -oh. what, if, <clears throat> what if we were to make a bigger one that's say half a gigawatt, the size you need to build the kind of power plant that would actually you know, run a, a major city with? Well, it could probably fit in a shipping container and that can be modularized just like the nuclear reactor modules can be modularized. So you build the, the turbines in a factory on an assembly line in the form factor of a standard 40-foot shipping container that can be shipped anywhere in the world on a container ship. If you wanted to replace every single watt of energy that we get from coal, oil, and gas today, that's 137,000 terawatt hours as of the end of 2022, that would be equivalent to about 217,000 reactor modules. If we were to build those at a rate of about 20 per day on robotic assembly lines, it would take 20 years to build out a fleet of 217,000 reactor modules. And that would also require, in order to, you, you need about 3,500 power plants around the world, gigawatt power plants in order to do that. So I, I take that number of 217,000, that's to replace all of the energy from fossil fuels. You figure that the the green energy movement is already running with renewables. So let's give the renewable guys as much credit as I think we can. I've done a little bit of cocktail napkin math, and I don't see how they could possibly ever supply more than 35% of this energy with renewables, with wind and solar. Let's give them that piece of the market. Say nuclear is going to provide 65% baseload. The renewable guys will provide the intermittent uh, energy for 35%, 65% of that 217,000 is 141,000 reactor modules. Put so, some very simple math together here. It would cost to build first the reactor modules, all 141,000 of them, enough to, to provide 65% of our energy from small modular nuclear reactors. It's about $1.41 trillion dollars. That's like a third of what's already been spent on nuclear energy. But that's just for the reactor modules. Now you got to build the rest of the power plant, including those carbon dioxide turbines. 
that's another 1.7. You get to $3.21 trillion. Look at what we've already spent, $4.6 trillion on renewables, and we've made zero progress at reducing fossil fuel consumption. I'm saying that for $3.2 trillion, you could, you could replace 65% of fossil fuel consumption. And the reason I say 65% is because I'm I'm letting I'm assuming that the the uh, renewable energy crowd is going to continue doing what they're doing and they're going to compete with this they're going to take 35% of the market. If you wanted to replace 100% of the energy that we get from fossil fuels all with nuclear, that number's around 4.8 trillion, just a little bit more than what we've already spent to make zero progress with renewable energy. So it's just staggering how much more economic it would be. And remember, the more economic it is, that means the more abundant and affordable we can make energy and the more we can get ourselves back onto that continuously improving standard of living. Now, well, Eric, how question. That... When, yep. when you say SMRs, are we, are we talking um, liquid salt at this point in time? Uh, it... Well, I, I really love the molten salt reactors because they can work anywhere on earth. They don't need the cooling water. What I think about in terms of how we would do this, if I were going to start the company I want to start, which is going to build all of these power plants around the world, I would mm -hmm. do two things. First, I would really take Copenhagen Atomics design for a molten salt reactor and say, that's what we want to get to. That's the goal. But boy, they're really pushing the envelope in a lot of ways. I would consider making a, 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 uh, a simpler technology um, pressurized water reactor that fits in the same form factor of a shipping container. So it can still be mass produced on assembly lines. The only reason to do that is time to market because regulators are so much of the problem here. There's no way you're going to get the Copenhagen reactor past Western regulators in all the countries you need to do it anytime soon. Whereas there's already been one SMR, which was a very simple pressurized water design that doesn't test, you know, doesn't push the envelope, doesn't use any of the advanced technologies. That's already been approved in the US. So I think right. you'd actually do it in a, a two-pronged approach. Start with a pressurized water reactor, but design the power plants so it's upward compatible. So you start with pressurized water modules, you pull out those shipping containers, which are pressurized water reactors, you replace them later on with molten salt reactors as soon as that reactor is available. Now, Eric, any issues, though, because I know very little about this, but what little reading I've done suggests that solid fuel, you know, which is the pellets people are used to seeing when they hold the little pellets of uranium up, you know, that go into a typical yep. big Westinghouse, that those actually have a very poor utilization of the substrate. So maybe 0.5, a half a percent or something of the of the uranium gets consumed, whereas in a molten salt, reactor, the idea is that like upwards of 90% or more of the fuel gets consumed. Given that, given given that there's all this processing, reprocessing, and plus you're going to need a lot of uranium if you're using a standard thing, does the uranium exist and do the processing plants exist for just to supply the base resource? Yeah, the, the uranium exists. One of the things that's really cool in the uranium space is there's a new uh, approach called in-situ recovery, ISR. And it basically eliminates all of the environmentally ugly mining that used to be required mm. to get uranium. The way it works is basically imagine that you've got a well that you've drilled, a water well to get drinking water from. But you live in a, a place where there's a lot of uranium in the in the rock, you know, below your, your feet where the, the aquifer is. 
So the water you're getting comes up polluted with some radioactive uranium in it, which is not great for drinking. What you do is you take your in-situ recovery mining operation. It's not really mining, it's in-situ recovery. You, you just keep pumping that water up. You run the water through what's essentially a filtration system that takes the uranium out of the water. And then it just pumps the water back down a disposal well back into the same aquifer. So you're actually cleansing the uranium out of the aquifer, making it more suitable for drinking water. And you, you pull the uranium out that way without having to do all of the ugly mining that has a tailings pond and, and big environmental mm -hmm. pollution and so forth. When you get to about $250 uranium prices, seawater is full of uranium. It's just very expensive to refine it out. So you've got an unlimited supply of uranium from the ocean. It's just going to cost a minimum of $250 a pound if you're getting it that way. Uh, it. For, for now, in-situ recovery is the way to do it. So if we use fully robotic assembly lines, we can build the, the 217,000 reactors you would need to completely re replace all of the energy that comes from fossil fuels. But wait a minute. That means building like 3,500 new power plants around the, the world. That's a lot of power plants. How are you going to build so many power plants between now and 2050? Believe it or not, the leader in that space is McDonald's. They can build, and in the video, I show actual videos of this process uh, happening. They can build a new McDonald's restaurant in 24 hours because it comes in a kit on a, on a ship and it gets trucked in and they can build that restaurant in 24 hours because all they have to do is use a crane to drop these factory assembled or factory built modules into place. And all the cash registers and the menu and the, you know, the ovens for cooking and everything are all in those modules. The restaurant is ready to operate 24 hours after they start building it. We can use the same basic technique to build this type of power plant. Just imagine all the reactors, they're, they're shipping container sized. They're being built on robotic assembly lines in a manufacturing plant someplace. They're getting shipped anywhere on earth and then they get trucked in like this truck is delivering one in the foreground here. That's where your reactor modules come from. The crane, the, uh, the, the, the turbines that make the electricity from this energy are not shown in this picture, but you could put your carbon dioxide turbines in shipping containers. You can take the parts needed for this crane and the various other parts of this building. They can all fit in shipping containers. So you can deliver a kit to build this entire power plant, the whole thing, everything you need to, to build a gigawatt power plant in a kit, and I contend in seven to 10 months, as opposed to the seven 10 to 10 years it takes to build a conventional nuclear plant, we could build gigawatt modular nuclear plants. Uh, the Copenhagen Atomics guys have already taken this idea through the, the construction of all of the, the modular reactors. They're not looking at the, at the turbines and all that stuff. They, they wanna be in the business of running nuclear reactors, small modular reactors delivering them to any customer who some of them will use it for electricity. Some of them will use it for, uh, uh, for seawater desalination. Some of it will, will, some of them will use it for making synthetic ammonia liquid fuels using nuclear energy. There's lots of different applications for the heat energy that comes out of these reactors. Copenhagen has done what I think is the best job in the industry of really getting this modularity concept, right? 
What I would love to do myself is to start the company that builds modular power plants around Copenhagen reactors. And in the beginning, it probably starts with a, a, uh, a pressurized water reactor in a shipping container because it's going to take a while for the Copenhagen stuff to be scalable. You know, the, the molten salt itself, there's no major manufacturer of molten salt right now or, or the salt that's suitable for, for melting in a reactor to really start building 217,000 of these Copenhagen modules. We're not quite ready for that. It's going to be a few years off. So I think you start with a pressurized water reactor in a shipping container. Someday, five years later, you pull it out at the end of its service life. You send it back to be recycled. You plug in a Copenhagen Atomics waste burner as a replacement for it, and it's plug, plug and play, upward compatible. You, you use the same modularity concepts that we use in electronics so that you can just upward, you know, upgrade something to the next provision. And, you know, you got the new CPU in your, or the new memory upgrade in your computer, but you kept your graphics card. Same thing. You upgrade the reactor, but you keep the steam turbine because there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, we can build modular power plants in seven to 10 months that will uh, compete on a 10 to one level of cost efficiency with conventional nuclear power plants. The whole problem, as I alluded earlier, is the engineers and entrepreneurs have known for more than a decade exactly how to do this. You and I discovered Kirk Sorensen's work more than 10 years ago. I think it was 2011 mm -hmm. when he started publishing his YouTube videos. You and I yep. were both on it. I looked at it then and investing in it. And every investor I talked to, every real serious institutional Wall Street guy who'd spent his career on Wall Street just said, we know about Sorensen. We know about molten salt. We know about thorium. The problem is it's the most overregulated industry in existence. And there's no way you're going to teach the old dog of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to do new tricks unless the president of the United States is personally insisting on it. So until you've got that, nobody's going to invest in it. So investors know better than to invest in any idea that requires nuclear regulators to approve something new. That's the reason that a company like NuScale, which just got its SMR design approved in the United States, had no trouble getting funding because they were not pushing the envelope. They weren't doing molten salt. They were just doing a simple pressurized water, uranium-fueled reactor. It's not anything new or advanced. The most innovative thing that NuScale has ever done as a company, so as far as I can tell, was obtaining the ticker symbol SMR on the New York Stock Exchange, which was a huge win. But as far as technology <laughs> yeah. innovation, they're, they're using 1950s technology. The, the people that are doing exciting things, and that's like Copenhagen Atomics, they've got a lot of passion capital from uh, high net worth individuals like me, family offices, people who believe in what they're doing. But institutional money doesn't want to touch it because the governments are standing in the way of progress. Meanwhile, everything that they want to do, China is doing it and doing it in spades. So when people tell me, you know, Eric, you want to build 3,500 nuclear power plants around the world, that's an awfully ambitious project. Isn't that a little bit unrealistic? That's what I have this slide for. The picture on the left was taken in 1951. In a laboratory, this was the very first uh, demonstration of electricity being produced from nuclear energy. All they managed to do was to illuminate these four light bulbs that you see here. That's 1951. Mm -hmm. Four years later, 
the USS Nautilus nuclear submarine set sea, uh, set sail, entered service with a full of 75 or 100 sailors, however many it takes to run one of these things. And they actually went to sea in a nuclear submarine four years after the very first demonstration proving it was possible to get electricity out of a nuclear reactor. That's what happens when the government wants to make something happen, when mm. they are trying to make it happen as opposed to trying to prevent it from happening. I am convinced, Chris, that the real purpose for which the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was created in 1974, and no, it's not a coincidence that that's the same year that the trend of increasing prosperity broke down, is because mm. their real mission was to make goddamn sure that nuclear energy could never be cost competitive with electricity produced from coal and gas. And they are executing that mission flawlessly to this date. What we need to do is get nuclear regulators that are focused on being part of the solution rather than being the, the, the source of the problem, which is what we have today. The thing I can't emphasize strongly enough is everything that I'm talking about. It's not pie in the sky. It's not fantasy. It's all happening right now, but it's only happening in China. They are way ahead of us. And if we don't get on top of this, What's going to happen? And I, I don't mean to criticize China. They're doing a fantastic job. My hat is off, off to them. The engineers and innovators there are doing phenomenal work. But if we continue to screw off with this wind and solar fairy tale that we're stuck in and not make any progress on nuclear, what's going to happen is China is going to continue, China is going to control energy worldwide for the next hundred years. And that is going to completely change the balance of power globally. It's going to create a completely different world and one that we're not ready for. Just look at the planned and proposed category. China is planning to build more than twice as many nuclear reactors in the next 10 years than the United States has in total. And after 70 years of building these things, that's conventional nuclear, the old school nuclear is what's uh, being shown on this slide. Well, what about the new and exciting stuff like my friends at Copenhagen Atomics are doing in those two slides we just saw? That's molten salt, small modular reactors. Well, the guys at Copenhagen haven't even started their first reactor yet. Whereas China took the research that Kirk Sorensen published on the internet, they built a molten salt reactor in the middle of the Gobi Desert just to demonstrate that you can do this in the in a desert where there's no adjacent water, uh, you know, ocean or river as a as a cooling water source. It, they they started it in um, in 2018. It's been completed. It was author it was issued authorization by their regulators for startup last year. So they've got a molten salt reactor. But that's a large-scale molten salt reactor. You know, the Copenhagen guys are doing something much cooler, which is a molten salt SMR, small modular reactor. Maybe we're still ahead, and China hasn't thought of that yet. Oops, no. Just last uh, week, Chris, they yeah. announced that they are going to build container ships powered by molten salt SMRs. And Man. the significance of this is staggering. It means exactly as I've predicted for a couple of years now, China is fully committed, not just to molten salt and thorium fuel, but to building molten salt SMRs and using them in all kinds of applications, container ships, 
Uh, I don't know if they figured out the modular uh, power plants and building them the way McDonald's does, but as soon as my video comes out, they'll know about that too. And they're going to control energy worldwide if we don't get our act together. Well, it's not, it doesn't even end here. They've also just in the last few days announced this is their, um, their, high, uh, their, their high temperature gas cooled nuclear reactor plant. This is not the artist concept uh, thing. This is, it actually started operating. It, it's in production right now. The significance of the high temperature reactor design is it's very conducive to seawater desalination and liquid hydrogen production. So if you want to make liquid synthetic mm. fuels, ammonia liquid fuel for powering ships at sea, eventually uh, new kinds of jet fuel that are clean burning and synthetically produced from nuclear energy, this is the kind of reactor you would need to do it. China's not just on the drawing table. They've already done it. They've already built it. Well, if you back um, up two slides from there, Eric, real quick. So that other one more. Yeah, see that? Like they, they show the power plant there um, and they have methanol production, gasoline plants, um, chemical plants. So they're already showing that that this is it's an integrated component of a value add chain where you develop also chemical components um, from basic building blocks. Right. So you yep. crack water, you get oxygen and hydrogen. You know, you, you can take uh, CO2 out of the atmosphere, get carbon there if you don't have other sources. Etc. So, so yeah, they're already uh, they way got ahead. the memo on modularity. They got the memo on thorium. They got the memo on molten salt. They got the memo on liquid fueled. Everything mm -hmm. that we should be doing, China yep. is doing in spades, and they're not yep. just planning it or talking about it or thinking about it. They're actually doing it, and it's going into production right now. And we're behind, and we we need to get our act together. And the crazy thing, Chris, is there's companies like Copenhagen Atomics and a bunch of other ones who are also got the memo working on exactly the right stuff. I talked to uh, Thomas Jam Peterson, the, the founder of Copenhagen Atomics. So uh, I talked to the founder of Copenhagen Atomics about this. I'm thinking, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, what you're always doing is it's a race because your competition is going as you know, in China, it's going really fast. You want to go as fast as you can to get to the finish line to get your product done. And I'm saying, well, what are you doing to accelerate the pace? You know, are you hiring people fast enough? What are you doing? He's saying, no, actually, I'm kind of slow rolling things because we've got to identify a regulator in a country that we can live with that'll work with us. And until we do that, I don't want to, you know, go crazy on hiring too many people and consuming the capital that we've already raised to rush to get the reactor ready to turn on when there's no country on earth so far that's told us they're willing to let us turn it on in their country. And, you know, they're in Copenhagen, Denmark. That's not a very friendly regulator. They were talking to the UK. They're talking, I know, I don't know which things that, that I know as an investor might be confidential. So I don't want to mention specific countries, but to give you the gist of it, what they're looking at is there's places, there are countries that would welcome the Copenhagen guys to come and test and certify their reactor in that country. But it's like third world places. And, and the Copenhagen guys are saying, you know, we don't want to go to Zimbabwe to, to introduce our reactor. That's not going to set, it's not a good message at all to the international nuclear community in terms of responsibility and safety and so forth. We want to do this in a major first world country. Well, other than China, who's doing all of this using their own resources, all of those countries have totally screwed up regulatory bureaucracies that are not open to approving anything new. 
and that's the and that's the reason that they they're kind of slow rolling the growth of the company is because they have to identify a regulator that's willing to work with them and the reason that investors are slow to invest in the most exciting advanced nuclear startups is because of this problem because the regulators won't work with them my new activism project which i'm just embarking on is to propose what I'm calling, I, I just coined this phrase the other day, what I call an open source regulator. The idea of saying, we need to create an international consortium of countries that recognize that energy transition is really important. Nuclear is a big part of it. And this idea of first, you have to go and spend 600 million to a billion dollars just with the US NRC to get approved to operate in the US. And then your, your license isn't good anyplace else. If you want to go and operate a reactor in the UK, you're going to start all over again. That doesn't make sense. What we ought to do is create a consortium of countries that all send their regulators into one place. We'll find a, a place to build a nuclear reactor test and certification facility. Maybe it's in the Australian outback or in, you know, in the desert someplace out of the way. And we'll invite all of the regulators to come in and participate in a process. We'll certify one of these advanced nuclear startups reactors. Every single review meeting, every document, uh, the, the review meetings are all videotaped. Every document is scanned and it's all online. So when you want to go to a new country and say, we want to operate our nuclear reactor and they say, well, it's not certified in our jurisdiction. You say, yeah, go to, go to opensourcenuclear.org and have your regulators look there and every possible document they could ever need that evidences the safety of our reactor design and the fact that it's been reviewed by this international consortium is at their fingertips. When you guys want to operate our reactor in your country, get your regulators to do their job. Go to the information that's already been prepared for them. We're not going to come and jump through hoops just because you're yet another country that wants to run things your way. We're going to give you all the information you need. Your regulators can review it, make sure they're comfortable and sign off on it. And, and, and that's that. I want to try to persuade a group of countries to create this international nuclear reactor certification authority. We already have the International uh, Atomic Energy Authority, IAEA. That's a, a different charter. It's not about trying to advance new technology and certify new reactors because they're trying to advance energy transition interests. I want to see a new international consortium of countries that are concerned about energy transition come together to promote this idea of let's certify a new reactor design once. So a company like Copenhagen Atomics, instead of having to spend a billion dollars in each first, first world country that they want to operate in can go to one place and spend whatever they have to spend in order to get their reactor certified. And then everybody else can just tap into that knowledge base in order to certify it in other jurisdictions. So that's my, my latest project. Well, that, that sounds fantastic. I, I will remind listeners at this point that there is no such thing as a low energy per capita rich country. They don't exist. One of the most robust sets of charts you can pull up in any economics textbook or, or, or line of inquiry shows energy use per capita along one axis, right? GDP along another axis, and it's a straight line, right? It, it's just a, it's a really robust um, piece of, of information there. So we have to solve this energy thing, and it's got to be cheap, abundant. It's got to be stable energy. So 
I'm convinced, Eric, that, you know, we have, we have, here's the thing, all these people hinging so much on this idea of wind and solar, which I'm getting very dismissive of, because what I want is I'm, I, I must have an inner Missouri guy for people who don't know Missouri's license plate says it's the show me state. I want somebody to show me a mid-sized city running hundred percent on solar and wind where they're siphoning off enough energy from that to completely rebuild those things. Cause Nate Hagen's adequately accurately calls them rebuildables, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, not, not, you know, alternative energy. So, so you have to use the energy to rebuild them and have enough left over to live on. And I don't think we're going to, we're not going to, we're not going to survive that. Now I have solar on my house. It's a niche. It's got, it's got interesting applications, but it's not ready for prime time. And we need to have something ready for prime time. Um, so with that, Eric, because uh, I want to talk about the implications of that, I want to ask you about the J.P. Morgan commodities chart, which shows that the world basically begins to have an oil shortage starting in 2025, and it just widens out as far as their chart goes. Um, I want to talk about where we really are in the energy story, because I, I do feel a sense of urgency. And then we're also going to talk about, well, what happens if we don't make this transition, but we're going to hope for the best. So where do people go uh, one more time so that they can see your um, see your amazing um presentation yeah well i have a a eight-part documentary series that's ready to watch right now it's about four and a half hours long very much inspired by the crash course it has a lot of messages borrowed from the crash course in it three episodes episodes five six and seven are all about nuclear energy so that's at energytransitioncrisis.org for this specific comp comparison of small modular reactors and really going through in much detail, much more detail than we had time for today. How do you completely replace all of the energy that we get from fossil fuels worldwide with nuclear energy before mm -hmm. 2050 for less money than has already been spent on renewable energy? That's a new video. And the, the target release date is the 27th of December. I'm trying to get my editor to get it done sooner than that. But by the end of the year, that will be available at energytransitioncrisis.org also. And I also produce a, um, a weekly podcast for sophisticated investors called Macro Voices, which is at macrovoices.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Best of luck with all of that. Thank you for your time today. And um, we'll be keeping track. Chris, it's always a pleasure. And uh, my hat's off to you. Thank you for starting this journey for me with the crash course. <laughs> my pleasure. All right, everybody, That's uh, we'll close this out here. And for Peak Prosperity subscribers, we're going to carry the conversation on as we do, uh, getting into some of the implications and things you can do in order to prepare for the future and become resilient.